is with us in service of church. We pray that you take your word today and you plant it deep in the hearts of all those who listen. Help me to know when to slow down and when to emphasize and when to speed up. That your name may be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, my name is Sam, I'm the Associate Pastor here and it's my joy to open up God's Word with you this morning as we continue in our series on idolatry. So the poem Invictus was written in the 1800s and has gone on to become one of the most iconic poems of the last hundred years. A poem that in many ways has come to define the cultural moment we live in today. It's inspired and, and, and been quoted at so many key turning points in world history, from Myanmar to India to South Africa to the UK to the US. Winston Churchill quote, cited it when addressing the British people during World War II. It was on the front cover of The Economist magazine's tribute to Nelson Mandela as a poem that embodied much of what he stood for and fought for. You may not have known where it was from, but you probably would have heard it in some shape or form. Here the final stanza. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You'd be hard pressed to find two lines that more accurately capture the spirit of today. A culture that for many people has been literally built on the fight for self-determination, for our rights and identity. I have the right to be who I am and to live based on who I am and what I want. But then, it's not quite so simple as that, is it? What do I do when my rights come into conflict with someone else's rights? When my right to say or do whatever I want impacts someone else's right not to be on the receiving end of what I do or say. And whose job is it to protect the rights of those who are going to come after us in the future? Or how about this? What if I disagree with someone else's identity, with the person they want to be? The same poem that's fueled so many inspiring tales of courage and determination is the same poem that's been quoted by terrorist bombers, racist groups, and hate groups. Our common response today is live and let live, that we shouldn't tell others how they should live. But that's not quite how we live today, is it? For example, when we protest something, aren't we essentially telling other people how to live? Think about this phrase with me. You shouldn't tell someone how they should live. You shouldn't tell someone how they should live. There's a bit of a contradiction in there, isn't there? By telling someone you shouldn't tell someone how they should live, aren't we then telling that person how they should live? The topic of rights and identity is one of those hot-button topics that on the surface seems so self-evident. But beneath the surface, it's actually much more complicated than it seems. And so this morning, as we continue our series on idolatry, we'll be looking at what the Bible says about rights and identity. We'll be talking about three things. One problem, two solutions, and three responses. One problem, two solutions, and th three responses. So, firstly, one problem. What's the problem? Here's the problem. 
The problems when we make our rights and identity more important than everything and anyone else. When our happiness comes to depend completely on our rights and our identity. That's the problem. But first, let me clarify what the problem is not. The problem is not about the right of every person to be treated with love and respect as someone of great value and worth. That's not the problem because basic human rights and the value of humans is actually rooted in God, his character and his word. We can see this throughout the Bible. Let me just give two examples. Example one, right back in Genesis 1.27, God teaches us that all human beings are of value because all humans are created in his image. 1.27, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What's remarkable is that this, is, this was so drastically counter-cultural when it was written. During a time when some humans were seen as being of vastly inferior value to others, Example two, God calls us to look out for the rights of the vulnerable and the oppressed. We see this throughout scripture, but just look at Isaiah 58, 6-7, where God says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from, his, from your own flesh? In faithfully living out God's word, the Christian instinct to care for the poor and the sick throughout the history of the church was again in stark contrast to the culture around it. You see, the problem isn't about the rights of every single person to be treated with love and, and respect and to be valued. Because God has always called us to protect and stand up for the rights of, of, of everyone else and ourselves to be valued and treated with love and respect even at a time when no one else thinks or lives that way. Actually, especially at a time when no one else thinks or lives that way. We all, every one of us in this room and outside this room, have the right to be valued and treated with love and respect. No matter what the world says about you, you are of great value because God values you. No, the problem isn't about the intrinsic rights value of rights and the intrinsic value of humans as being created in God's image. The problem is when we elevate those rights, our rights and identity to a position higher than anything or anyone else. When I say I have the right to be who I am and to live based on who I am and what I want. The problem comes when we kick God out of the, out of the picture completely, deciding for ourselves what our rights are and how to apply them where we make it a monologue rather than a dialogue with God, as John preached last week. The problem is when we worship our rights and identity so much that we sacrifice everything and everyone else on the altar of rights and identity because our happiness has come to depend completely on our own notion of rights and identity. That's called idolatry. As Brett preached from Romans 1 a few weeks ago, Idolatry is when we exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worship and serve something created rather than a God who created it and sustains it. That's idolatry, which is anything we make more important than God, anything we rely on for happiness and satisfaction apart from God. And so for the rest of our time, 
we're going to be looking at Philippians as a case study to see how we should respond to this problem of idolatry. We start with the situation in the Philippian church. Two people can't get along. Look at Philippians 4, 2-3. Paul writes, I entreat, which means appeal or urge, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. It is this situation of Euodia and Syntyche not getting along that Paul is addressing in Philippians 2. As Paul addresses it, we can see what he diagnoses as the underlying problem. 2 verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The interpersonal conflict, the lack of unity between two of Paul's faithful fellow workers in the church stemmed from an idolatry of rights and identity. What he says is that they were being selfish, focusing on their own rights, their own interests, and their own pride. And they were focusing on their own self-made identity, seeing themselves as being more significant than the other person. And if we were to zoom out just a moment, isn't this a situation that many of us can relate to? How many of us have gotten into conflict because of our pride and focusing on our own interests? Not just in the church, but with friends, families, co-workers. And sometimes the absence of conflict doesn't mean the presence of unity. Sometimes the relational chill that is there because we're trying to avoid conflict can be worse than the conflict itself. So back to what Paul writes in verses 3 to 4. This whole series of idolatry, when talking about biblical change, we've been using the categories from Ephesians 4 verses 22 to 24. The categories of putting off the old self and putting on the new. And so these are our two solutions for this morning, to put on and to put off. As I read out verses 3 and 4 again, see if you can frame what Paul is saying in terms of the two solutions of putting off and putting on. Verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. To address their conflict that stemmed from the idolatry of rights and identity, Paul is calling the Philippians to put off their desire to be in charge of their lives, to put off their focus on their own rights, their own interests, their own pride, even their own self-made identity, and instead to put on complete submission to God, submitting their rights to God by focusing on the rights of others and interests of others. And this is how Jesus lived and died. Look at verse 5 where Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In verses 5 to 8, Paul is presenting the life of Christ as an example of the putting off and putting on that he's exhorting the Philippians to in verses 3 and 4 as we just read. And in doing so, Paul is really pushing his exhortation to a completely new extreme. How much of their rights did they have to be willing to give up to God? Look at it in verse 8. To the extent of humbling themselves by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God calls for total, complete obedience to the point of death, even the humiliating 
excruciating, degrading death of crucifixion on a cross? And how much of their own identity did they have to give up? Verses 6 to 7, as much as Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We see here God is calling them to surrender their entire view of themselves to him. As we seek to apply this to ourselves today, we need to be clear here. The call here is for us to submit our rights and identity to God and to put off our desire to call the shots on our own lives, putting on complete submission and trust in God. Instead of deciding for ourselves what our rights are, we come to God and base our understanding of our rights on what He says. Instead of fighting for our own glory, we fight for God's glory. The trajectory of our lives has changed completely to be no longer about our own purposes, but God's redemptive purposes. Just as Jesus submitted his rights to a loving father to achieve God's redemption for the whole world, God calls us to submit our rights to him as part of his redemptive plan for the whole world. Submitting our rights to God doesn't necessarily mean submitting our rights to others. It does here in the, in the context of conflict in this passage, and it often does mean that for us, but it doesn't always have to be the case. Because God is not, in this passage, calling us to give others a blank check to abuse us and trample all over us. Because as, as you said before, everyone has the God-given right to be valued and treated with love and respect. And that's why God spends so much time telling us to protect the rights of those who struggle to protect themselves. So sometimes submitting our rights to God may mean giving up our own rights. Other times, submitting our rights to God may mean taking steps to protect the rights of ourselves and others, which may sometimes be even more difficult than not doing anything at all. Whether it means submitting to God by giving up our rights to others, or submitting to God by taking the step of building healthy boundaries to protect the rights of ourselves and others, complete submission of our rights and identity to God is always difficult. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Here's the question. What's my response when God calls me to do something I don't want to do or to be someone I don't want to be? Who is the master of my fate? Who is the captain of my soul? Who is the Lord of my life? We usually have three types of responses. Why should I? I won't and I can't. Why should I? I won't and I can't. Let's talk about each of them. Firstly, why should I? What gives God the right to tell me how to live my life? Well, here's the thing. How do we decide who has the rights over anything? Here's one way to think about it. My family and I love to go to Science World. There's so much there to do and to play and to see. Our boys love to go there to play with the water exhibits and to see the dinosaur exhibits. I like going there to see other parents do what I often catch myself doing, trying to take what is meant to be just a fun day out into something educational. Yes, it's so great that you're having fun, but isn't it equally great how magnets work? One thing I never see though, is someone trying to pick up one of the exhibits and carry them through the front door to go home. At least if they did, I'm pretty sure that they'd be stopped by the security. 
The reason why this doesn't happen is because we have a way of deciding who has the rights over, over anything. It's the person who was there first, the person who created it, or the person who purchased it. The very first person on a piece of land often has the rights to that land. We have such a complicated patent system because the creator has the rights to the creation. And I can't just go into science world and walk out with whatever I want because I need to purchase it first from the one who created it. And so we have Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible provides the foundation for our entire biblical worldview. And it shows us why God has the right to tell us who we are and how to live. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1.17 goes on to say that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. God is the only one who has the right to be the Lord of our lives. And not only is God the only one with that right, he is the only one we can trust to submit our rights to. As it says in Psalm 9 verse 10, which was in this week's reading plan, that says, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You see, if we submit our rights to God, our instinct must be to ask God what he would have us do. Like I said earlier, submitting our rights to God doesn't necessarily mean giving up our rights to others. Sometimes submitting our rights to God may mean setting up healthy boundaries to protect the rights of ourselves and others. And this is where community is so, so important. If we're in a toxic relationship where our rights are at risk, often we're not the best judge of what God would have us do. And so we need input and support of others. But as we discern God's will through his people, his word and his spirit, let's be honest, sometimes, many times, our response of why should I is really just a smoke screen for I won't or I don't want to. So many people I know who've walked away from God claiming that they no longer believe in God started on this path with something that they wanted that went against God's word. So if our first response to God's call for our complete obedience is why should I, our second response is often I won't or I don't want to. Even when in our heads at least, we agree that God has the right to call the shots in our lives, in our hearts we don't actually live that way because our idolatry of our rights is actually a smokescreen for deeper heart idols, our underlying desires and motivations. What would other people think could be that? idolatry of approval. I don't think that's practical. I don't think that's a good idea. Could be the idolatry of control. I like who I am. Or it may make things worse than they are. Or I don't think I have it in me. Could be the idolatry of comfort. We struggle with following God's commands for us to put off and put on because that, that's not the full solution to the problem. Again, in the language of Ephesians 4, the key to putting off and putting on, to wanting to obey God completely and surrendering our rights and identity to Him is the renewal of our minds. Some of you may have noticed it already in our passage of how Paul makes frequent references to the mind and verbs of thinking and perception. I've highlighted the references in verses 2 to 4. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And it's not just in this passage, scholars have noted Paul's frequent references to the mind and his uses of verbs of thinking and perceiving throughout the entire letter to the Philippians. Paul is making clear that the foundation to the solution is in the renewal of our minds, which refers not just to how we think and understand things, but what we desire and direct our lives towards. As the trajectory of our lives changed to be no longer about our own purposes and our own glory, but God's redemptive purposes and His glory. The key again is in verse 5. Christ gives us not just the example to follow, but the reason to follow His example. Christ gives us not just the example to follow, but the reason to follow His example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The only reason we would want to follow Christ is if we come to understand how lovely He is, that He is gentle and lowly in heart, and only in Him will we find rest for our souls. You know, there's a story about Mother Teresa about how one day she went to a local bakery to ask for bread for the children in her orphanage. The baker, outraged at people begging uh, for bread from him, spat on her face and refused. It said that Mother Teresa took out her handkerchief, wiped the spit from her face, and then said to the baker, okay, that was for me. Now how about some bread for the children? We're drawn to stories like this because deep down, despite everything we say about the importance of our rights, deep down we're drawn to those who would give up their rights for the sake of others. And so let me tell you about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. God was the first one here. He was before all things. God is the creator. All things were created by and through and for him. And in him, all things hold together. It was his right to receive all honor and worship and obedience and allegiance. And when we didn't honor him as we ought, when we worship the created things instead of the creator, he had every right to condemn us and cast us aside. But instead, he gave up that right by sending his son to pay the price to buy us back. His son, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being born in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Christ City, when we struggle with obeying God, read verses 6 to 11, not primarily first as an example for us to follow, but as a revelation of what God is like. He was the first one here. He's the creator of all things. It was his right to receive all honor and worship and obedience and allegiance. And when we sin against him, he gave up his rights by dying for us. 
humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the humiliating, excruciating, degrading death of crucifixion on a cross, buying us back, redeeming us from the power and penalty of our sins so that we could live with him in glory. When we struggle to give up our rights and live with Jesus as Lord, we must confront the lie in our hearts, the lie that we think we know best about how to live our lives, the lie that God is out to get us and oppress us, the very same lie that Adam and Eve believed back in the Garden of Eden. This is a lie, Christ City, that our hearts are so prone to believing because without God, in our spiritual monologue, we are spiritually enslaved. Our hearts are corrupted and deceitful above all things. That is a lie because God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Instead, when we grasp the truth, the truth of who Christ is, and what he's done, and what he gave up to do that, we'll see that living with Jesus as Lord of our lives is not a life of entrapment, but a life of freedom. Not a life of loss, but a life of gain. As Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When our eyes have been opened, when we see how glorious Christ is, we want to do everything we can to gain Christ, to live under his loving and gentle lordship of our lives. Living life under Christ's lordship would, as Paul says in 2 verse 2, make our joy complete. So to those who say, why should I? Because Jesus is Lord. To those of us who would say, I won't, look at Jesus our Lord. Lastly, there are those of us who say, I can't. For many of us, we know that Jesus is Lord and we want to live with him as our Lord. But we really struggle to live it out every day. And so for those of us who say, we can't, again, the key is in 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ's life is an example for us to follow. Christ's life is what motivates us to follow his example. But lastly, Christ's life and death and resurrection is also what empowers us to follow his example. The life that Jesus shows you how to live is yours in him. This means that the example that Jesus gives us to follow in his life in one sense, we've already lived that way. And so in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, we will live that way. Idolatry says, I have the right to be who I am. Let me tell you who I am and how I want to live based on who I am and what I want. In the gospel, in Christ, Jesus says, let me tell you who you were, who you are, and who you will be. Christ City, in Christ, we have a new identity and a new Lord. In Christ, we can say with joy and confidence, Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. In Christ, we can sing with confidence when all around my soul gives way. He is all my hope 
and stay. See, the beauty of not living a life limited by my own will and imagination is that I'm free to live a life with an identity more glorious than I could ever imagine. Empowered by a spirit more powerful than I could ever hope or dream of. Therefore, we seek to live life with Christ as Lord, giving up our rights to him and obeying him completely because he alone deserves our complete allegiance. We do this not to earn favour with him, but in response to what he's already done and, and the identity that we have that is ours in him. This doesn't mean that we will live perfect lives, but it does mean that by God's grace, we'll become more and more like him until the day when we're with him face to face in glory, when at his name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we deserve nothing but judgment and you deserve nothing but glory and praise. Yet you sent Christ to take our judgment so that we may live with you in glory, for your glory. We thank you and praise you and pray that you would empower us to see you for who you are and live under your lordship of our lives. Amen. If you're watching this with your house church, it's time to get ready for communion. Communion is to be celebrated in community with those who are also under the Lordship of Christ, who have this new identity in Him. The bread and the wine remind us of how Jesus gave up His rights, His body to be broken and His blood to be shed so that we may be redeemed to live a new identity in Him.